0: Let ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, please, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have the privilege uh, we'll do toward the end of the service is take opportunity to pray for the Roy's and then have a time of fellowship together uh, in the atrium as they'll be heading out, Lord willing, tomorrow to head to the field of Spain. And uh, we've been grateful for having them around for this past year as uh, the Lord is redirecting their steps uh, from the Dominican Republic to a new field of service and uh, using, uh, using circumstances and his providential outworking of things uh, to accomplish his purposes. It's his, uh, it's his work, and so he has the permission. Isn't it nice of us to give that to him? He has the permission to move the pieces Uh, of the game wherever he seems sees best to deploy them and uh, we need to recognize and understand that and uh, certainly as a local church cooperate with it. As I was thinking about uh, tonight uh, obviously it's Thanksgiving weekend Uh, it's an opportunity for us to think again about the mission of Christ my mind was drawn to one of my favorite texts actually I I went back and uh, did some quick listening to sermon audio to make sure I hadn't Uh, I won't just reproduce everything I've said about this text before. It's one of the problems with preaching in a bunch of different places. This is actually a different message on this text than I've ever preached here that I have any record of. All right, But it'll have some overlap because uh, the the basic truth is one that I've probably hit. um, I'm pretty sure I've hit it every year for 33 years in one form or another. And and that is that the motivation for ministry and for missions is centered in God. That that has to be our ultimate motive, that it is actually God centered. and, And therefore, from that, we can draw out some things that this text I think will help us think about. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. Paul's writing and he says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And a couple of times when we've looked at this text, I've, uh, I've tried to show us that one of our ambitions ought to be, if we really want to see God glorified, is to provide or encourage or stimulate occasions of giving thanks because this text says giving thanks to the glory of God. And so we've looked at then from this text a bunch of other passages that would show how we can draw people into the process of giving thanks. And there are are a number of texts that talk about that. In this particular case, uh, Paul is explaining though the purpose of his ministry in that it is ultimately to end in the giving of thanks. And you can see that in the way the text is laid out. There's a string that's here. Think about it in terms of, uh, if I could, sort of dominoes that are, are, are falling one for other. All things, that's the first domino. He says, that is for your sakes. All right, so all the stuff that he does falls into their benefit. But then there's another statement, so that the grace which is spreading more and more people, right? So, so he does all things for their benefits so that grace will spread to more and more people. And that domino, grace spreading, actually falls into the next one, which is causing the giving of thanks. And then that one falls into the abounding to the glory of God, right? So the it's a string of actions. Paul, and we're gonna, I'll unpack it a little bit, but the all things, he's told us what that is in the context around it. So, so he does all of these things so that some benefit may come to them. Because the benefit coming to them is actually a part of grace spreading to more and more people. And when grace spreads to more and more people, it causes thanksgiving to be abounding to God. All right, Grace produces gratitude. And gratitude results in glory to God. In fact, I uh, alluded to this this morning near the end of the sermon that Paul's uh, immediate response, thanks be to God, it stands in contrast to the response of fallen humanity in light of the knowledge of God. When we knew God, we didn't honor him as God, neither were thankful. At the heart of humanity's rebellion against God is to not glorify God and not be thankful. So so the work of the gospel actually is aimed at that root problem, restoring gratitude, which honors God. All right, so... So here's, here's the chain. Paul says all of the things that he's doing in ministry does have a benefit for the people to whom he's ministering, but it's larger than that. It's aimed at advancing the grace of God, which will re- result in gratitude to God, which brings God glory. It's his ultimate end, right? The ultimate end is the glory of God. And that's... Um, you know i've i've hit that drum and by god's grace we'll never stop hitting that drum because we are born as as self-centered people second corinthians 5 says we live for ourselves 515 instead of for him who died for us so so a part of our inherent depravity is that we are self-centered and we live in a human-centered world that views everything in light of uh, of mankind. God has been set aside, and so the standard for ethics, the standard for happiness, the standard for every aspect of our lives is actually set by humans and for humans. Right? And it's it's really, really important to understand how much that filters into it, particularly when we're talking about ministry and missions, right? Because, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but if you go out here and do all things, if you have a man-centered, human-centered approach, a self-centered approach, then there are going to be some things you'll say no to. Like death-threatening kinds of efforts, Right? It doesn't make sense to risk your life for the advance of the gospel if the most important thing is you. Right? There, there won't be self-sacrificial actions taken if self-centeredness is the governing value. The only reason you'll be able to lay down self in sacrifice is if you're actually committed to something larger than yourself. You see your life as serving something larger, namely God and his purposes, rather than, and, and this is the sneaky way man-centeredness works, is to think God actually exists to serve you and your happiness. Right? And I, if we think well god really can't want me to potentially do that can he right god wouldn't want me to risk my life or he wouldn't want me to potentially endanger my family or or he wouldn't want me to endure this kind of hostility or put up with this kind of lack of appreciation or whatever right if if we're the center it's going to unplug the motivation to pursue this chain as far as God wants us to pursue it. But if God's glory is actually the center, then, then we're able to press through what might be natural quitting points because we've actually adopted a whole different value system that Paul refers to at the end of the chapter, which is, we don't look on the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. Right? We're operating by a different standard than, than a human-centered one, which, which uh, is really and radically controlled by what we can see. Right? The what's in it for me? And I need to be able to see what the benefit for me in this is. And and because because we're the center, it it actually has that kind of uh, uh, dangerous unplugging of it. So God must be, God's glory must be the central motivation of our lives. Right, it is the thing uh, which which is to enable us and empower us and direct us. Right, we can't. We can't pursue ministry in a way that would contradict the glory of God. All right, we actually have to pursue ministry according to his will, if it's really aimed at glorifying him. Because there's ample evidence in the scriptures that God is not satisfied with just anything we do. All right, have a conversation sometime with Nadab and Abihu. About choosing to worship God the way they wanted to worship God instead of the way God said to be worshipped, right that would be like the prototypical example of being toast right they chose to offer strange fire, and God was not pleased with it all right and and you can you can pile up examples of that of of people determined or, or saying they're going to serve God, but doing it according to their own standard. I was thinking about this the other day, and actually it's a part of what, it, I didn't actually put the two and two together till right now, But so work with me on it. Talked about this morning about lawlessness leading to lawlessness and people being blind to that. I mean, a great Old Testament example of that is, is, is Saul. Right? He's given very clear instructions by God about what to do to the Amalekites and everything that the Amalekites possessed. And he disobeys it. Samuel shows up and Saul basically says, I've done all that the Lord commanded. You remember that famous? I mean, it's it's those parts of the, you know, the, the way you learned it when you were a kid. Samuel says, then what means this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? In other words, Saul I shouldn't be hearing sheep if you did everything the Lord commanded you. What's, there's some kind of cognitive dissonance here. You're telling me you did everything the Lord commanded and I hear a bunch of sheep. Something can't be right. So Saul convinced himself that he had done all the Lord wanted to do even though he clearly didn't. Because Saul's heart was not right with God. It wasn't actually the glory of God that was controlling Saul's life. It was Saul. Because immediately, Samuel says that. And who does Saul start to blame it on? Well, it's the people. I mean, well, I had to do something. The people. And he had had the same problem three chapters earlier. When, when Samuel hadn't shown up and, and he, all the people were starting to scatter, so he steps into the office of the priest and he violates the law of God. Well, the people were scattering. So what did that mean? It meant my way, my life, my goals, my ambition were the most important thing. Not what God said. Not what God wanted. It was the world according to me was the evidence that he was really at the center. He could choose to disobey what God said and somehow still convince him that God mattered more than he mattered. But the fruit proved it wasn't true. God wants us to be so committed to his glory that we will not only be motivated by it but it will actually be the standard by which we measure what we're doing. Are we being faithful to what God said? Because if we're not being faithful to what God said, then we're deceiving ourselves about our motives. And here's what we all have to realize. None of us knows our heart as well as we think we do. Right, God said the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And you know the answer to that? Only God can know it perfectly and truly. So, so I've never been impressed by people saying, well, I know my heart. My heart is perfectly clean on this. And I've always thought to myself, you don't know that. I mean, here's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, it's a small thing that I'm judged of you over any human court, and I don't even know anything against myself, but I am not by this acquitted. Because it's God who examines my heart. Right? Paul can say, I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't guarantee that I'm spotless. Because only God can bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the secrets of men's hearts. So the standard for us isn't some fuzzy, my motives are all good. It actually is, are we committed to doing what God said to do and seeking to do it? Right, Because that's the task. Are we committed to do what God said to do and precisely at those places where sometimes it doesn't seem humanly to make sense, we find out if we trust God or not. All right, and one, another one I always go to is, is uh, David moving the cart, you know, moving the ark by the cart, and it starts to teeter. And, and probably a well-meaning Israelite reaches up to stop the cart from falling, and God kills him because it was actually a betrayal of the glory of God. I mean, think about it, folks. Does God need help keeping an ark off the ground? I mean, does does God really need us to disobey him to protect himself? Does God really need us to break his word to get his work done? I hope your answer on all of those is, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Okay, God can make walls fall down by trumpet blasts. He can, he can open up seas and close them again on top of armies. He doesn't need our help in that way. In fact, Paul's very clear in Romans that God is not served with human ends. Acts 17, I should say. He's not served with human ends. God is not dependent on us. He doesn't, he doesn't need our disobedience to get his work done. What he wants is to be honored. He wants us to acknowledge his glory and be so committed to his glory that we're not going to disobey him in what we do all things for the sake of ministry so that grace spreads in the all things it is all things that God commanded all things that God wants done not whatever we can come up with or whatever we think and we have hearts that are prone to deceive ourselves about why we do what we do. Right? We are incredibly good at justifying, justifying our actions under fuzzy things like, well, we love God, or we're trying to honor God. And, and we need to move out of the fuzz to the specifics of the word of God. What does God say to do? And how does he say to do it? So it's our motivation. It's also the standard by which we pursue that. So the ultimate end is the glory of God. And that happens when people come to understand his grace and therefore they respond in worship and praise to God. Now, what I want us to see in this text is, is actually sort of how how God has intended to carry this out. The first is in the verse itself. It says, the grace which is spreading to more and more people. So what we're doing here is, is talking about the fact that one of the chief means by which God has chosen to glorify himself is the spread of his grace through the gospel. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Okay? I think sometimes, I hope this is not the case for us, But sometimes Christians, when the world gets tough and it gets dark, can adopt sort of a remnant mindset that thinks God has sort of shut down the shop. And all our job is sort of to tie a knot in the end of the rope and hang on until Jesus gets back, right? We we can actually start to become somewhat pessimistic about the power of the gospel and the and the intention of God to see his grace spread to more and more people. right? And, and I think that we have to be careful about that because there's, there's, uh, there's no contradiction in the scriptures between evil people getting worse and worse and things headed downward in the society around us and the gospel advancing. right? We shouldn't tie the two together. Sometimes I think in our culture we tie the two together because we have had the privilege of living in a culture that has its roots in gospel expansion. Right, this weekend's Thanksgiving weekend, right? that's associated with the arrival and survival of English separatists who came to america for religious freedom in part people who professed faith in god and wanted to be able to be able to do that without being squeezed into conformity to the church of england All right, so pilgrims and puritans are sort of our heritage and and they've had a shape on the framework of our country and so the prosperity of America and the prosperity of the gospel for a long time sort of ran alongside of each other. So the tendency can be for us when when the prosperity of America seems to be in question and the country's in moral decline and turning away from God is to think that somehow God's given up, the gospel doesn't work, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow because this is a mess. And I think we have to break that tie because this side of it, the prosperity of America, is is usually glassed over as one unbroken chain of, of sort of near millennial blessing. But, but actually, the reason the Great Awakening was a Great Awakening was because things were pretty bad religiously. And the Second Great Awakening came at a time when the religious temperature of America was pretty pathetic. And there was a great revival in the middle of the 1800s when the country was just about to be torn apart by civil war. Right? So, so it's not actually been like one unbroken ascension of Christendom. It's been it's been actually a very different kind of a picture. Uh, certainly enjoying providentially the patience and forbearance and blessing of God providentially. But over here, the gospel advancing steadily through. People coming to Christ, churches being established, missionaries being sent out that's 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 not been tied to that necessarily. right and And certainly that's not true historically, right? The Church of Jesus Christ flourished in the midst of Roman persecution. Right? Gospel preaching, advance of the work of Christ. Happened often in the face of public displeasure, and and by almost pull out a big twenty-five cent word, opprobrium, right? Uh, being looked at as as an offcast and and rejected socially, and we may be getting back to that. And if we think the prosperity of the mission of Jesus Christ is tied to our public acceptance, tied to our control of elite government influence, or the only way we'll win people to Christ is if we're viewed as socially acceptable, That would become the threat to our commitment to God's glory because we may enter a phase like what Paul was here experiencing that standing for Christ was not going to get you applause. It was going to get you ridicule and rejection and scorn and sometimes persecution, right? That does not stop the spreading of God's grace. It is the advance of the gospel that will be the means by which God will bring glory to himself by the gathering up of worshipers from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. From the gathering in of Christ's sheep. That's what he said in John 10. Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them must I also bring, and they will hear my voice. Jesus is going to accomplish his mission. He is going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our our place in that program, we do not control. If we happen to be, find ourselves among a generation that has to suffer persecution for Christ, that's in the sovereign outworking of God's plan. It may be that God is operating on a different timetable than us, but I can tell you where it's going to finish. Jesus is going to be surrounded by people singing, worthy is the lamb. And they're going to be from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. God will be glorified in that way. The Son Will receive the reward of his inheritance. He will ask the Father for the inheritance of nations which the Father's promised to him, and the Father will deliver them to the Son. It is gonna happen. It is going to happen. So, so we should stand in the moment where we are and simply say, the task you've given me, the all things you've given me right now, I'm going to fulfill faithfully so that grace will spread to more and more people. Whatever it is God gives us to do, we should do it trusting him that he is going to cause it to advance in the way that he wants it to advance and it will result in glory to his name through thanksgiving. And we trust him, so we obey him. We do his work because God will be glorified through the spreading of grace. And it may be, and this is the part from the context that we need to understand, it may be that God designs the means of that to be sacrificial ministry. That he, in fact, uh, in unpacking the all things, may choose to demonstrate his glory through the things that his people endure, all right? So 4.15 says, for all things are for your sake. So what are the all things? We'll jump back to to verse seven, and you can see where he starts to list these out. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh So death works in us, but life in you. You can see, or maybe heard as I read it, in verse seven, there's a connection between the human weakness and the greatness of God's power, right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels, why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God. God chooses sacrificial ministry to demonstrate his power in the working of it. And this is one of the things I mean, I've used this illustration or given this as an example of this before, but I mean, the first time it it really sort of clicked with me is I was recruited my sophomore in college to start a Bible study down at Clemson University, and the target was to be in the athlete's dorms, all right? So Clemson football was big then. That's actually, they won the national championship uh, in, in actually during my freshman year. Uh, William Refrigerator Perry, I mean, you guys remember that that name from way back? He was on campus and he was huge. I remember walking by the guy, I mean, he was huge, all right? So so the goal was, I mean, I was recruited in and, and the goal was, hey, if we can get some of these athletes to, to start to attend the events and the Bible studies, we'll draw all kinds of people in. Right. So it really was. And, and I, and about the same time, you know, I I was in a class and they were talking about youth ministry and they were, they were basically telling you how you build your youth group. Right. And, and it was basically some model of the sort of celebrity thing. If we can get, I mean, I'm just going to use this phrase. If we can get the beautiful people, the influential people, then we'll get everybody else. Right, so if we can get some of these athletes to come, they'll draw everybody else. If you get you get the popular kids in your youth group to come, then they'll draw everybody else. Right? It's this this mindset that actually says the way we win people is us. Right? That's the same, that's the same attitude that Paul's confronting here. Because you know what the Corinthians were saying to him? Paul, your message is about weakness, and that doesn't attract people at Corinth. You're, t- you're preaching about a crucified Messiah, and that's offensive and a stumbling block. I mean, they're, they're, Their very point is, you got to stop making us look bad, Paul. Because if we look bad, we're not going to reach anybody. And Paul says, well, we shouldn't do any needless offense. He talks about 1 Corinthians 9. But the bottom line is if you're going to follow a crucified Messiah, that's never going to be attractive. I mean it's it's never going to be attractive. Right? In their culture because of the immediate signification of that in our culture because of what it means about sinners. Right? You want to give people a gospel that treats them as not that bad off, you'll get a listening. You preach a gospel that demands the death of Jesus Christ because of the horrendous nature of their sin. You're going to have a lot of people go, well, you guys hung up on all that blood stuff. You, God, God's not a God who's angry. He's, he's not going to send people to hell. He loves us. Why well, are you preaching this stuff about wrath? Right? And that's, that stuff's that's always in the air. The reality of it is, though, God says, hey, I have precisely deposited this treasure into earthen vessels so that when it works, the vessel doesn't get the credit. Right? They, they may put Aaron Judge's bat into the Hall of Fame for hitting his 62nd home run this past year. And it'll be there, but nobody thinks the bat did it. Everybody knows there was someone swinging that bat. And the one swinging the bat receives the credit. When people come to Christ, it's not the instrument that should get praised. When a church grows, it shouldn't be the leadership of the church to get praised, or the church itself ultimately gets praised. It should be God. We are earthen vessels. The excellency of the power is God's. And sometimes God shows us how earthen we are so that we're reminded that he's the source of success. He's the one who should be glorified. He reminds us of our weakness. And sometimes he presses on us, right? That's verses 8 and following. God is in control of Paul's life, and God allows Paul to be afflicted and perplexed and persecuted, right? Struck down, caring about the dying of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus will also be manifested, so that the life of Jesus will be manifested, so that grace will spread to more and more people. God wants us to do his work in a way that he is glorified. And so sometimes our weakness is evident in that, but also sometimes that that weakness actually is used to enhance the credibility of the messenger. right? Because Satan's accusation against Job does have a ring of truth when he says to God, well, you've given him everything he could want. Of course he'll serve you. Take it away and see what he does. Right? That was the test of Job's love for God. I mean, when he's got a boatload of kids and he's he's richer than everybody else, and he can go, look what all God's done for me. It's hard to get mad at a God who's giving you everything you ever wanted. When all of a sudden it gets hit and your health's gone and there's struggles there and it's difficult and it's not abundant prosperity temporally and you worship God. You praise God anyway. You keep doing the thing God's called you to do. It's at that point that it's demonstrated that you actually believe the message. right? You actually believe what you're preaching and teaching. You believe what you're telling other people. Because the grace that we're talking about is about things which are not seen. Right? It's about a promise that we're going to be with God. And if we make it, if we make this message, oh, hey, you know, Jesus died. You can spend eternity with God, and it's the greatest thing in the world. God's, you know, God becomes your father. Your life is so much better. And all of a sudden, you get diagnosed with cancer, or you lose your job, or all of a sudden, because you speak the truth about Christ, you start to come under intense persecution from people. You're the subject of the whisper campaign at work. Oh, you're the, the religious bigot. You're the the self-righteous person who won't accept everybody because don't you know that Jesus loves everyone? For you to say that they can't live that way is hatred. All of a sudden, you're under attack. And if you wilt back from that, it undercuts what you're saying. You, you, You lose your credibility as a witness at that point. But you stand up by God's grace in the fire of physical testing, of spiritual warfare, of relational struggles, of trying to make it in this world, being faithful to God. Those fires come against you and you stand trusting God, believing God's promises in the heart of the people who are speaking against you, I'm firmly convinced will be the kind of kicking against the goads that was in Saul's heart when he was lining up to see Stephen put to death. When he was dragging people off to prison, there was a fight going on in his heart because there was something about what they stood for and what they said that had power to it, because the message means something to them. They have a credibility in the witness, and that's what God calls us to. And I, I think, in some ways, uh, you know, Jeremy and Amy have have seen some of this. Right? They've been through some tough things that God has ordained for them, and they have kept their eye on Christ and have adjusted the direction of their life in order to be faithful to the call of God while accommodating the circumstances that God has brought into their life. And You're not done with that yet, right? So so have your heart anchored on the glory of God and be willing to endure all things so that grace will spread to more and more people to abound with thanks to the glory of God. And the same is true for people seated all over this auditorium right now. You're walking through things that are testing your confidence in God and forging your credibility as a servant of Christ. Stay tethered to the glory of God. That's the thing that makes it worth it all. This light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's what Paul moves to at the end of this chapter. Believe God for the things that you can't see. Trust him that his glory will be so manifested that you will share in the overflow of that blessing. You will be glorified in Christ and Christ in you, the way Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 1. Let that sustain you. Let that drive you forward for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you loved us and our Savior demonstrated this very thing, that he endured contradiction of sinners against himself. He suffered affliction and and endured those things because of the joy that was set before him. And so we're to look to him And Lord, help us personally, congregationally, never to lose sight of the fact that you are worthy of all glory, and we want to see and share and speak of that glory so that others will see it. In fact, the very message we preach is your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God seen in the image of Jesus Christ so help us to be radically committed to that and 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 tethered to your word so that we're faithful in its pursuit we ask in Jesus name amen